Welcome to Don't Think Twice. Vijay and Stevens is the writing and producing duo of Amrita Vijay and Andrew Stevens. Best friends, business partners, creative partners, and now soon-to-be co-parents. This week, we talk about legal and financial implications of pregnancy as a pair of unmarried, unpartnered freelancers. Our host and friend, Marina Weiss, lets us get nerdy on tax policy, contracts, and we coined the term non-nuptial agreement. Let's switch and talk a little bit about the business of having a baby and self-employment. How has that been working? So not only are we having a, a child in, the, in a non-traditional platonic relationship, we also uh, own a business together and are self-employed and that uh comes with its own um, host of issues. Uh, and babies, uh, I know, are, are, are expensive. And as uh, Fortune Magazine and The Economist recently, over the past year or so, have published all sorts of pieces about how it's economically not viable to have children or desirable or something, 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 something like that. Um, as two self-employed people, I would say that's that's even more so in that we don't have the protective umbrella of any sort company of company-provided health insurance that provides not or only policies. health insurance, but also any sort of leave. Now, I understand that every state's different and that there are many, many millions of people in this country who don't who don't aren't provided uh, parental leave. But as our self-employed uh, company in, in New York State, if you have your own company and the first 26 weeks, which is six months, the first six months of forming that, you purchase an insurance policy, then you are eligible for parental leave. But in that, if after six months of forming a company, you haven't purchased a policy and decide to, you can do that, but then you must wait two years before that policy becomes effective. Because what they don't want is for a woman to get pregnant who owns her own company and, then and, to, buy a per- and, and to buy a policy and, and then, then to immediately be, be able, able to, to use it. it. If you're a woman in New York State and are employed with a corporation, it's also lawful for that corporation to say that you have to wait 26 weeks. So in New York State, the state is saying that a person, they have to make money for a company before they can have a child. Before they've earned the right to be. Before they've earned the right. To be compensated. A woman has to work six months before she has the right to take off time to have a child. Mm -hmm. In a a paid. uh, In a paid capacity. Yes, and be compensated for that. But correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I missed something, but it sounds like you have a special case as a self-employed person because you have worked for six months. You just didn't plan to have a child two years in advance and sign up for parental leave. So we don't have a policy. Mm -hmm. So the only way that we would qualify for one is if two years ago in May, (sighs) we had bought a policy. So we won't have paid parental leave. Mm -hmm. So we just had to had to financially plan for that independently um, and f- get to a place where we felt comfortable not 
work not receiving compensation for not taking on compensated work so that's that and you the listener can decide how you feel about parental leave (laughs) in this country and how you feel about that what i'll add to that though is that we are self-employed meaning that we paid self-employment taxes meaning that we pay on top if you're an employee of a company you pay taxes social security and medicaid we pay what 15.6% almost 16% almost 16% meaning that we pay twice as much into that into both of those systems and as a self-employed so, so person if you work for a company, than the person who works for a company right if you if you work for a company you pay a little under 8% um, because you split the, that cost with your employer so as a independent business owner you incur that twice both as the employer and the employee so you pay 16% instead of just 8 right so in effect, we are we bear twice the burden of sustaining Social Security, which is really basic income for anyone who's basic income sixty-two, and sixty-five, or whatever care. they elect to take it, <laughs> and universal health care for old people. And yet, the federal and state government decides that women who are of their child-rearing years don't even have the ability to take off 11 weeks when they have pulled something out of their body and need to sustain its life. Mm-hmm. Wild. And it's like, you know, just the way that everyone in our species starts out, you know, it's like a totally <laughs> helpless being. And it's like, good luck with that. You got to go back to work. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Please like- go back to work so you can pay 15.7% <laughs> to us so that that 75-year-old and... Uh, God bless the 75-year-olds, but you get my point. And are there ways to lower self-employment tax burdens? There are ways, but if we're talking about a small business in the United States for which this country is, is so unfriendly to small businesses. Very. The expertise, and we are lucky my mother is a CPA, but... The expertise that's needed in order to lower your tax burden is something that we should not assume that small businesses have. And, and you know, just in general, the tax code is very set, set up in a really um, hostile way for small businesses, which, again, in my anti-capitalist screeds, uh, is very much by design because they do not want you to have your own business. They want you to work for a corporation and make money for somebody else. That is what our country is designed for, for like the average person, uh, which is why we will we will never have universal health care uh, until there's like a general strike, because that is a method of control for of uh, um, for the corporate like oligarchs is to say that we get to control whether you have medical care or not and i think if a lot there's a lot of people who probably do work a, a job because it provides them access to many many people having medical care and if and maybe if they didn't have to do that they might not want to work that job anymore and that is something that companies want to defend against well my aunt who died of cancer this past december at the age of 62 with rheumatoid arthritis and, a, and some health issues, only worked, only worked at her job, because of the insurance. because of healthcare. Yeah, the system is designed to be hostile towards entrepreneurs and uh, some entrepreneurs. So. If you're in technology, you get a bunch of tax breaks, but that's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so returning to this podcast, <laughs> let's talk about that experience through the lens of a queer family structure, a chosen family structure. 
What about the legality of your baby's relationship to you? This episode requires a fair amount of footnotes, as it was recorded before we met with our legal team and learned a whole lot of new shit. So I put out a little bit of a call uh, like on social media about what questions people might have for us uh, as we go through this process, as we go through this having this podcast. And I really hadn't considered at all that people might have an interest in the legal the legal side of things. And I did get some questions about that. Uh, sure, of course, like people would be curious about whether we have um, legal agreements in place that govern both our financial obligation to each other and the, and the baby, uh, as well as our like caregiving obligations to one another and the baby. You know, financially, our, our interests are already very much um, combined because we do have a business together. So we already have a shared bank account. We already have a lot of shared uh, financial responsibility. And those are governed by contracts. Like we, we, we do have a lot of legal documents that govern um, our ownership over the, the company, our assets, uh, our financial assets. Uh, and that is like, you know, as binding as, as a marriage in many ways, like having a business together. Um, so financially, some of those guardrails are already in place. Uh, but we are working on a co-parenting agreement um, with uh, an entity called the Chosen Family Law Center, which I actually found out through another podcast um, that was a pod- it was an episode, I think, about polyamory. And uh, that le- legal entity has been doing work around recognizing more, like if you have more than two parents in the family, and that could be like two couples that are maybe raising children together or, or like a throuple who's raising children together and um sort of getting parental rights for everybody involved um and that's how i came to find out about them but they do uh agreements for all sorts of different um setups and what we're pursuing is something that is a co-parenting agreement which is essentially just designed for any non-married um pair like co-parenting pair okay quick addendum first of all we should note we chose to draft agreements together neither of us was the client of the Chosen Family Law Center. Otherwise, Andrew and I would each have to retain our own separate legal counsel who would represent our interests individually. Instead, we chose to do the process together, which means that the lawyers are instead acting as mediators to help us reach mutual agreement on the legal documents. Um, Again, in some ways, our path is eased because our names will both be on the birth certificate. Um, So unlike... uh, um, two women that we are friends with uh, who had went through a year-long process to get a second parent adoption um, for the non-birthing mom. And uh, that is not something we'll have to go through. So really what we're trying to achieve with this agreement is to, um, you know, make sure we have protections for each other and that our relationship to one another is established, our relationship to the child is established yeah, so it's two things. It's our relationship to one another. And that can be in in the short term and during the birth of a medical situation. You know, if you really think, think of it, it's easy to forget the kind of rights you're granted when you are married and the rights that you don't have when you're not. And it only comes up and can come up in really critical situations I in the hospital if there is some some medical situation and it's her and I 
I don't have legal rights to make any decision unless we plan for that. Which we, we will be. Which we have, and, and, and that's great. But it, it's just something to, another thing to put on the to-do list and really think carefully. Um, and I can imagine it's easy, it could be easy to slip your mind. And Because in that case, then what would they do? They'd have to like call, call my parents. In Ohio? <laughs> yeah. And my next of kin to make a medical decision, although they're not in the room and he is, you know, and he is biologically the father of the, of the child that's being born. Here's an addendum. Married couples are granted a lot of rights that we didn't even realize while recording this episode. Those rights are not limited to making medical care decisions about one another. Even more fundamentally, a marriage endows the right of assumed parentage. Why is this idea of parentage important? Establishing parentage is the process of determining the legal parents of a child. Being the legal parent means that you have parental rights and responsibilities. So on one hand, you have the right to seek custody and visitation. And on the other hand, you have the responsibility for your child's care and support, including financial and medical. Sidebar, let's note that this language typically refers to paternity, and the wording here does not confer any caregiving responsibilities or day-to-day well-being of the child. Those, of course, become, by default, a woman's responsibility, but that's a different tirade. Back to the point. If you are a man and a woman who are married, and the woman becomes pregnant, the man is assumed to be the father from a legal standpoint. If you are unmarried, the burden of proof rests upon you to prove parentage. You can voluntarily establish parentage without going to court by filing what's called an AOP, or Acknowledgement of Parentage. The problem is, your only options for an AOP are to either attest to A, conceiving naturally, quote-unquote, which is explicitly defined by the state as via sexual intercourse, or B, via assisted reproduction, meaning with proof provided by a medical facility that you conceived via IUI or embryo transfer. Again, if you are married, you do not need to file an AOP because, I quote, a child born to married parents is presumed to be the child of both parents. So if you are not married, if you do not conceive via heterosexual intercourse, and you do not have a medical paper trail, you are left in a legal gray zone for establishing parentage. The Chosen Family Law Center has been very helpful in guiding us towards a legal solution that indicates our intent to conceive and parent a child together. And that process is still ongoing. And this brings me back to that moment earlier in our discussions when we were talking about the fertility clinic and how if you had just pretended you were fucking, you would have had the implied privileges of romantic couples. Like it also feels like if you were just the bio dad who was like not that, you know, reliable, but still showed up in the moment around certain things, like you would have rights that maybe um, are more difficult to establish as a non-romantic or like never romantic. Well, I think in this case, in this case, actually, it, it is really the marriage boundary that that um, provides that. Um, and in fact, there is a, we won't go too far into this, but there is a famous case that's going on ongoing right now um, where a mother died in childbirth and the father is still struggling to get custody of the child because they were unmarried. Um, and that, I read that story with a lot of like uh, alarm um, because uh, just 
a because it's a terrible situation but um just thinking about like you know if there was a situation where i'm incapacitated or i need to make a medical decision there is a form that that we can fill out in the short term that will allow andrew to make those decisions in the hospital uh for this labor but um but then we also want to think about are there longer term versions of that that we want to consider right Right. there so there's the birth and and the and the child but there's the longer term and this is what gets really interesting and kind of gray very gray because we are looking to the chosen family institute to help us draft materials that do bind us together and yet we won't be a married couple but we will have you know privileges but we're sort of creating a document a legally binding document that reflects exactly what we want and which parts of it we want to opt into and and now that i say that out loud it's so interesting because it's like well then at that point what what is a what is <laughs> What's a what is not a marriage about that <laughs> right. yeah is right. it just a different marriage this is a different contract marriage on our terms with our our agreement i would argue that since you're also business partners who have additional (laughs) legal contracts that you have more commitments than most married people have only speaking for myself we will have equal custody of of the child will all of everything around our child or children future children is you know 50 50 equal when i think of my child looking at his parents i also want him to be ref- a responsibility to one another to be reflected back to him the way a family mm-hmm. the, the way a family is responsible and cares for one another now i know he won't recognize it as like a, a, a legally binding right. thing it wouldn't and matter. that's sort of an adult <laughs> concept that your infant isn't going to recognize legal contracts. <laughs> <laughs> the questions that that are that are the guiding, like sort of uh, intake form for the Chosen Family Law Center, a lot of them actually do have to do with parenting related choices, such as like you know what are your views on religious decisions for the child or um, discipline parent you know sort of parenting philosophies and i think you know for the most part andrew and i feel that we don't really need a legal document to govern a lot of those decisions because we're very good at negotiating those types of decisions between our, ourselves and we'll you know um surely there are people who have maybe not considered that and do need some like a third party mediator to help them think that through but mostly we've thought that stuff through we we're we're on the same page but it's really about just making sure that we've thought through other eventualities of like what do we need to be thinking about as a non-married couple that um that we might not be thinking of from a legal standpoint that um that is assumed to be you know like you said assumed to be the case or, or that a married couple might automatically get and answering questions about what is it does require us and the form does ask like to think about yes but what would what would what circumstance could lead to the lead to the dissolution of your relationship and that i would say is something that i've never you know you don't really want to think about things like that so it's something that i really hadn't put any thought into and so when i was confronted with that question i was like i can't think of anything 
I can think of nothing. And then so really, really pushes you to think about like, but really what would it be, you know? And actually, you know, we came we came up with some with some answers to that question, but it did take some thought because it's not something that we would normally pose to each to one another. It's not a question that had ever been posed to me before. Um, even by like my parents or anything like what happens if, you know, the worst that my parents could come up with was like, what happens if, you know, Andrew wants to move out or you want to move out, whatever, like, but from a legal standpoint, it's like, what would cause a custody issue? And that's important for someone to ask. And again, I feel like this is just, you know, one of the underlying themes of this podcast already is the case against, um, like compulsory heterosexuality, right? (laughs) Like actually, you know, in a marriage in a like traditional monogamous heterosexual marriage there are specific like culturally ingrained you know reasons for which divorce or dissolution of the contract is like standard right and i think there's very little allowance for people to vary from that script absolutely and i think you know similar in a marriage you you almost certainly are not confronted with a questionnaire that when you're about to have children that asks you to consider what might cause the breakdown of this marriage and cause a custody battle between the two of you. I know very few married people who have had that conversation as part of their like pre birth. I mean, we're kind <laughs> of creating a prenuptial agreement without In a, a way, nuptial. Yeah. <laughs> like a non nuptial agreement. Oh, no. okay. Let's go with that. Sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> we got to think of another word. We'll work on that. We'll Some work of the language around this needs to be workshopped. <laughs> but but I think non-nuptial works for now. But I think I I also think like we are just noticing that y'all are at kind of this new frontier in terms of actively getting to create a chosen family. And I hope this doesn't sound too morbid, but like my very dear aunt spent a lot of her 30s caretaking a friend of hers who was gay who had HIV mm-hmm. and who died um of AIDS eventually and um yeah thinking about like how close their relationship was and how in many ways it was like a marriage and in many ways they were you know sharing some of these same conversations about like you know medical decision making um feels like it's just coming up a lot for me as I think about this. And I'm so glad that we're in this happier space for queer people where, you know, we have AIDS drugs and we have these other things and, you know, we can pursue reproduction with the benefit of science and with the blessing of society. Um, And at the same time, I feel like, you know, it's surprising to me in some ways that we're the first generation where this is like actively a pursuable option. A hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really, it is a really relevant example because that's another case where, um, or an era where like queer chosen family was so important and just like such a cornerstone of, of, um, gay culture in that time. And there are really very few protections that existed at that time for, um, for those people. Uh, separate from just becoming more and more excited about the baby itself, um, now that we're really looking down the barrel of the gun, <laughs> so to speak, um, I'm realizing the other parts of my life that may change because bringing um, a baby into the world 
there's there's the our, our little nuclear unit but it's not non-nuclear nuclear unit, non-nuclear yes. nuclear <laughs> unit yeah um but it's not this little independent thing it, all around it are relationships all the way around and change can be good and great and healthy and all those things too but i'm feeling i'm feeling excitement about the baby and anxiety about impending change impending change yeah well becoming a parent is a big transition it's a big you know moment to consider what you want to take with you into this next phase of your life from the prior experiences you've had of experiencing other people's parenting or experiencing you know societal expectations about relationships or showing up for people that you care about and what you want to create that's your own. Here is a list of the questions on the co-parenting agreement intake form. We thought this would provide some interesting context or just some food for thought on how you as a listener might react to these questions. Question number one notes that co-parenting agreements with three or more parties may not be legally enforced or recognized in court. Number two, what is your expectation of the level of child care provided between the parties for the child? Would one of you be the primary caretaker? Number three, do you expect to live in the same household as the other co-parents? Number four, what is your vision of an average weekly schedule of child care sharing? Number five, who will pay for the child's expenses? At what proportion will they be split? Number six, will each parent be entitled to take the child for vacations solo? Number seven, do you intend to celebrate holidays together or would you prefer to split holidays? Number eight, will each co-parent have an equal decision-making role in educational, medical, and other major decisions about the child? Number nine, do you have any particular views on the following topics? 9A, religion slash baptism. 9B, medical issues, vaccines, or medical intervention. 9C, public versus private versus religious schools versus homeschooling. 9D, discipline, spanking, or saying no to children. 9E, parenting styles and philosophies. Permissive, collaborative versus authoritarian. 9F, sleep training and co-sleeping. 9G, food preferences, refined sugars, soda, processed foods for children. 9H, how will gender normative language be used for children? If your teen identified as transgender and wanted hormonal therapies or surgeries. 9I, when and how to discuss sexuality and sexual orientation with your children. 9J, social media presence, use, and privacy. 9K, circumcision, infant ear piercing, other body modifications of children. Number 10, if you disagree on an issue related to the child, how will you resolve it? Professional mediation or another strategy? Number 11, how and when will you explain the child's non-traditional family structure to the child? How will you answer questions from the child such as, why don't I just have a married mom and dad like my friends? Number 12, what will the child call the co-parents? Number 13, when would you think it is appropriate for you or the other co-parent to introduce a new romantic relationship to the child? Could a romantic partner ever get full parental status? 
Number 14. Are all co-parents committed to living in the same geographic area for 18 years? What if career or romantic prospects appear elsewhere? Number 15. If one person moved away or the relationship between co-parents broke down, would you agree to visitation? Would you still make major decisions together effectively? Number 16. What, if anything, could lead to a breakdown in your co-parenting situation or relationship with your potential co-parent? Number 17. Do you have any fears or concerns that you have not yet expressed? Number 18. Do you have any other hopes, expectations, or intentions that you have not yet expressed? A last addendum. We went into the law offices last week to execute my will and my medical directives to make sure that Andrew can act as my medical proxy in the case of childbirth complications. So we had to do that before the delivery. The Chosen Family Law Center folks were lovely, extremely sweet, very rigorous in their work, abundantly queer and queer affirming, and we're just looking forward to completing our co-parenting agreement and our other paperwork with them. Just thought it was worth saying. They're great. Our next few episodes welcome some special guests to talk about their own non-traditional journeys and the separate gendered expectations around being a gay dad and about being an unpartnered woman. Then we come back together with Marina to talk family and romance later in the month. Marina Weiss is a poet and clinical psychologist, and you can find her at marinaweiss.com. We are at vjandstevens.com or at vjandstevens on Instagram. That's V-I-J-A-Y and Stevens with a P-H. 